0: This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. The Kennedy Center was built to be a monument to arts and culture. There's a place for the symphony and the theater and the opera, all in one massive, imposing complex. An opening night in 1971 at this shrine to high culture in our nation's capital at the first ever performance in this grandiose space, the audience hears something totally unexpected. This music is called Mass. There are rock musicians, folk tunes, blues, and a marching band performing alongside the orchestra. Glory to God in the highest. The person speaking is called the celebrant, a priest, the leader of an unruly, ever complaining flock. At the climax of the piece, they, questioning the need for God in their lives at all, provoke the celebrant to a furious rage. He hurls the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ to the floor. And the architect of this sacrilege and this music, maybe the only person who could have gotten away with it, was Leonard Bernstein. Isn't that odd? Leonard Bernstein, a conductor who led some of the world's greatest orchestras, a public intellectual who used TV to bring classical music to millions, and a composer who blended genres to create provocative, powerful American music. With Mass, Bernstein wasn't shocking genteel listeners just for the sake of doing that. He wanted this music to resonate. The Vietnam War was raging. The Kent State shootings had just happened. Watergate was just around the corner. Tension was massive between the counterculture and the establishment. And this music, Leonard Bernstein's Mass, spoke to the soul of a divided nation. It was a happening. That's conductor Marin Alsop. She wasn't at the premiere of Mass, but she has conducted it, and she knows Bernstein's music as well as anyone. Sort of the,
1: the real epitome of Leonard Bernstein, it was eclectic, it was unexpected, it was over the top, it was warm, it was profound, a spectacle for sure.
0: Welcome to a special edition of The Great Composers. I'm David Ginder of Colorado Public Radio. We wanted to talk about Leonard Bernstein as a composer, not a conductor, and why his music resonates today. As a classical radio host, I often try to tell listeners why a piece of music is still relevant today, and sometimes it's a stretch. This time, it's not mass still sounds raucous and challenging. It's as in your face in 2018 as it was in 1971, and no one but Leonard Bernstein could have written it. So much of Bernstein's music is like that, it hasn't lost its impact. So with the 100th anniversary of his birth on August 25th, we looked for someone who could give the best possible introduction to his music. And I think we found her. Maren, this is David Ginder.
1: Hi, David. Maren here.
0: Good to speak with you. Uh, you're uh, situated. You have water and so forth. You're ready to start? Yeah, I'm all set. Okay. Marin Alsop is music director of the Baltimore Symphony. Colorado audiences know her because she was music director of the Colorado Symphony for 12 years and still serves as conductor laureate. She's a wealth of knowledge about Bernstein's music. She studied under him. She's conducted and recorded almost everything he's composed for orchestra. And one of Bernstein's first major pieces is a great example of why his music still resonates. It's called The Age of Anxiety. He wrote it in the late 1940s in the early years of the Atomic Age. Bernstein was a handsome, dashing young conductor who'd taken the New York Philharmonic by storm a few years earlier, and this music was not what you'd expect from a figure like that. It was unsettling music, based on a poem by W.H. Auden, and you can hear ideas in this piece that make so much of Bernstein's work fascinating. It's a
1: poem about these existential questions that stayed with Leonard Bernstein for his whole life. It's a poem about belief and connection and loneliness, you know, sort of universal loneliness, that we all grapple with, and the question about whether ultimately we're all alone, or whether ultimately we're held up by some kind of spiritual hands. ¶¶ Those are big, big, big ideas. (laughs) And in Age of Anxiety, Bernstein uses the piano soloist as the protagonist. We'd go on this journey with the soloist as our guide through imagined landscapes, imagined stories. But really the ultimate narrative is about how to assuage that fundamental loneliness that every single one of us feels. So it may have a darkness to it, but it also has, I think, the sense of motion and going somewhere and exploring and trying to find answers. It's not a static piece at all, and it has a huge variety of moods.
0: Bernstein took that idea of using different textures and sounds to an even greater length in a piece he wrote for the stage, Candide, first performed in 1956, is based off the book by Voltaire. Audiences didn't know what to think about it. It's not an opera, not a musical. The original Broadway production was a disappointment. It closed after just two months. Then it underwent many revisions to create the version Marin Alsop and other conductors present today. But its thrilling music built on a story about an unfortunate, in many cases, brutal series of events.
1: All these horrible things befall the main characters, absurdly horrible things, whether it's shipwrecks and war and pestilence and, you know, everything, you name it, it happens. And yet they blindly keep trying to believe that they live in the best of all possible worlds because that's what they've been taught.
0: Let us review
1: Lesson 11, paragraph 2, axiom 7.
0: Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds.
1: Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. You know, I think the underlying message for Bernstein was very, very important about belief systems, about thinking for oneself. But the vehicle to get that message across was misunderstood. And so he, he worked tirelessly to try to tweak it so that it was palatable and understandable. But it's so much a piece based around absurdity that I think it was almost too absurd for audiences to get past that to the fundamental message. That said, the music I think is phenomenal.
0: I remember when you did Candide with Baltimore Symphony four or five years ago, I remember you're saying that when you go to see a performance of Candide, you need to check your reality at the door and then come into the hall.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I, I really do think that we're much more capable of checking our reality at the door these days, you know? I mean, what's real, what's not real, what's truth, what's not truth? And um, and as soon as you think you've heard it all, you hear something more absurd So I think Candide is just coming into its own. It was way ahead of its time.
0: Yeah, do you have um, a favorite part of Candide?
1: Again, you know, I I love the whole piece, but I have to say, um, because I perform it so often, I think the overture is truly a musical gem. To be able to capture this kind of frivolity and beauty in a four or five minute overture, it's musical perfection.
0: Bernstein followed up Candide with another genre straddling piece, and this one is legendary. West Side Story blurred the line between classical music and Broadway musicals in 1957. It's based on Romeo and Juliet, but it reimagines that story in New York City amid racial tension between rival gangs, the Sharks and the Jets.
1: When you're a jet, you're a jet All the way from your first cigarette to your last dying
0: day When you're
1: a jet, if the spirit's the fan You got brothers
0: around, you're a family man You're never alone The music you're is fantastic, but so are all the elements creative lyrics, stunning choreography. I saw a production of it not long ago with the original choreography. Those West Side Story audiences in 1957 must have been blown away. There's so much that makes this music endure.
1: I think it's an incredible combination of things. Um, You know, the piece is composed with probably the highest level of skill of any great composer. It's a brilliantly conceptualized piece. Bernstein takes one interval, which is the inter I mean nobody you don't really need to know this to to experience the piece, but it's a an interval called a tritone.
0: Boy, boy, crazy boy.
1: an interval that requires resolution, which in the old days was known as the Devil's Interval, and he uses that interval throughout the piece, because of course it's a piece about conflict. It captures the narrative, and I think that's what Bernstein was all about, capturing the narrative. Plus, of course, he could write a great tune, uh, the song Somewhere, those beautiful leaping intervals. It expresses this kind of yearning, and it also has a universal message, I think, about people finding their own place in the world.
0: And that universal message, I'm assuming, is what makes this piece popular even today, some, what is it, a little over 50 years since it was premiered.
1: And it's so quintessentially Bernstein, the fact that he went back to Shakespeare, to Romeo and Juliet which is, of course, a, a timeless story now for us in, in our human shared existence, that storyline forms the basis of this updated version that is so brilliant, but also so much about Leonard Bernstein, who felt that art, you know, whether it's literature, whether it's music, um, whether it's visual art, art is a collective gift, we all should have access to it, and it's a great equalizer, Bernstein believed.
0: Marin, you mentioned that this piece, along with all the other things that make it a great work, is full of great tunes, and I'm, I'm gonna ask you a really unfair mm-hmm. question. Do you have a favorite moment in West Side Story?
1: I think, you know, maybe it's the, maybe it's the measure of a really great piece that I have a lot of favorite moments because Emotionally, they're so varied, you know, whether it's in the middle of the mambo, where that groove is just so contagious and compelling, or whether it's in the beautiful melody of somewhere or the tonight moment when all the singers come together. Gosh, I I think all of those moments are my favorite moments, and for differing reasons. And for me, that's the sign of a great work of art, is that it has many, many different moments. Every time I work on the piece, I find something new, which is really inspiring.
0: Leonard Bernstein was a conductor first. He wrote a lot of his music while he was also music director of the New York Philharmonic. That's a demanding gig. He also campaigned for human rights. He was a TV personality too, and we'll get to that in a bit. The fact that he was able to straddle those roles and find a way to do them well is part of why Marin Alsop finds him fascinating.
1: Bernstein was an amalgam. He was the sum of all these unbelievable parts and unbelievable experiences, and the thing that I knew was that his genius didn't lay in all these areas he was a genius in, although he was, but it really, for me, lay in how he was able to connect the different dots in life, so that what he did as a conductor, of course, informed what he did as a composer, which informed what he did as an educator, which informed what he did as a TV star, and he was a such an organic whole. I'm not sure if he pulled one of those blocks out or changed it, um, what kind of effect it would have had on him. I'm just glad that we do have so much music, as much music as we do have from him, and that people are really having the opportunity to hear so much of his repertoire that isn't as frequently played. You know, it's good to have a centenary every 100 years or so, I think.
0: (laughs) Yes. Leonard Bernstein believed that concert music should be relevant and should talk about people's modern lives, and he famously dedicated Kaddish, his third symphony, to JFK after his assassination in 1963. What about Kaddish made that music as, as powerful as it was to that moment?
1: Well, like everything Bernstein did, it was a microcosm. It was a symbol. I recorded the Kaddish with the Baltimore Symphony, and we did the original version. I want to say Kaddish. And just by the sheer gesture of having a woman narrate the Kaddish, which of course is pretty much forbidden in the Jewish religion, He's already breaking expectations and barriers. And I love the original narration because she is questioning God, you know. We have a deal, you know. You made me in your image, but you could only make me in your image if I first made you in my image. Listen, almighty, with all your might. There may just be no one to say it after me. And this idea of sort of the covenant between man and God, that God would not exist without man, and vice versa. It's such a um, compelling way to begin a piece. And then, of course, we have choirs and children, and, you know, it's it's just a huge tour de force. It's an exploration of faith, and this is what Bernstein was all about. He was trying to find an answer for the question, can we believe? And every single piece has that journey in different ways.
0: Throughout this period, writing West Side Story, conducting concerts around the world, he may have been most famous for a series of shows for the small screen. TV was a new medium that Bernstein took full advantage of to reach young listeners in a groundbreaking way. Okay, now what do you think that music's all about? Can you tell me? That's just what I thought you'd say. Bernstein's Young People's Concerts aired all over the country and taught kids about classical music, including a young violinist and future conductor named Marin Alsop.
1: He was a fantastically charismatic guy, and that combined with um, his ability to distill an extremely complicated art form (laughs) into um, a narrative that everybody could access. I mean, it was a winning combination.
0: When you talk about Bernstein distilling this complex art form into uh, something that's understandable, he wasn't just talking about classical music during these shows, was he? He was talking about other kinds of musics, and he was talking about everything, wasn't he?
1: Sure, but that's uh, sort of the essence of who he was, that music was just a vehicle to talk about everything else in life. let's
0: take a a pop tune. In fact, let's take a typical Beatles tune and see what happens. Uh, Here, first, there's an A section. Uh, I give her all my love, that's all I do, and if you saw my love, you'd love her too, I love her. That's A, all right? That's what's... It was
1: all revolutionary, I mean television was a brand new medium, the concept of talking from the podium was a brand new idea. Making the connections between popular music and classical music was a brand new idea. It really took someone like Leonard Bernstein to make them all work, and he was just the right person in the right moment. He grabbed the opportunities. You know, he ha- he was a visionary who could see the potential, and I loved the way he just would do something. You know. Yes. Let's go swimming. OK, let's go. Yes. You know, I mean, it was, it was completely spontaneous.
0: I remember as I was watching the Young People's Concerts, uh, when he would make a reference to, for example, the Beatles, my mom would get this look on her face, and, and I think she actually expressed it sometimes, too, that the Beatles had nothing, no place in the concert at all. So let me ask you about, uh, about your personal experience with the Young People's Concerts. What do you remember about watching those concerts?
1: I remember that they were on CBS television, I think they were on Sunday afternoons, um, so I remember um, always sitting down with a snack to watch them. Um, I remember the black and white TV we had, and I remember when he would start talking to me and how excited I was that he was, you know, that this guy, Leonard Bernstein, was talking to me. and. I couldn't wait for those, and of course it was one of those young people's concerts that my dad took me to, and we sat really close when I experienced him in person. And I turned to my dad and I said, ah, oh, I want to be the conductor just like him. I was—I think I was nine years old, and I never changed my mind. And I can't tell you how many people I run into that say, you know, I got excited about classical music because of those young people's concerts so i hope our next generations will have someone like leonard bernstein to be their guide as well
0: that one and that one and that one and that one all put together according to a plan and the guy who plans it is called the composer whether he's named richard rogers or rimsky korsakov he's the composer and his plan is to put the With together, all these projects, TV shows, orchestral performances, lots of recordings, Bernstein needed to carve out time for his compositions. So in the mid-1960s, he stepped back. He took a sabbatical from the New York Philharmonic and spent a year as a composer. He explored sounds that a lot of composers explored at the time, edgy, dissonant music that stepped away from traditional harmony. And after he'd written those experiments, he scrapped all of them, he returned from his break to premiere Chichester Psalms, one of the most approachable tonal pieces of music he'd ever write. Marin Alsop says there's a deeper struggle going on in this music.
1: What happens throughout his compositions is that we see um, that atonality versus tonality becomes uh, symbolic. Atonality is a symbol for crisis, and tonality is, I think, Bernstein's symbol for home and safety. And so atonality starts to take on its own character in Bernstein's music. And I think after taking time off to really look at that, he comes back even more committed to tonality than before.
0: Do you have a a, a moment in the Chichester Psalms that, that speaks to you in particular?
1: I think the second movement where he gives the spotlight to the boy soprano. It's genius on many, many levels, particularly because innocence is such a big part of our belief system. And for me, the moment when the chorus is singing their themes behind the boy as soloist, I think that's pretty spectacular.
0: moments that is is just inexplicably grabs you and won't let you go
1: (laughs) yeah it's a wonderful wonderful piece
0: which brings us back to mass that unusual piece that gave the Kennedy Center such a love it or hate it opening night in 1971 If you've ever been to the Kennedy Center's Opera House, you know it's a special place at showtime. It's a little crowded, there's an electricity in the air, but this must have been exponentially more exciting. Bernstein was there, the Kennedy Center was brand new. The central character on stage is called the celebrant, who wears robes, many in fact are wearing reverential garb, but there are others on stage dressed as business people, hippies, and beatniks at a classical concert.
1: My impression from people that I've spoken to who were there is that it was a huge, rousing success. The people were blown away. And, and I understood that um, Bernstein kissed every single person in, in the cast, maybe in the hall. I don't know, it took a long time, <laughs> so.
0: Marin's being a little generous here. Yes, it was memorable. Yes, there were supporters, but it also generated a lot of criticism, even shock. Harold Schoenberg in the New York Times said it was a combination of superficiality and pretentiousness, and the greatest melange of styles since the ladies' magazine recipe for steak fried in peanut butter and marshmallow sauce. So I asked Marin what it is that turned off some of the audience members.
1: I think it was probably a challenge to separate Bernstein, the public persona, from Bernstein the composer, particularly in this instance. Um, because he was there at the premiere, Bigger Than Life. Um, I don't doubt the criticism was sincere, but I'm not sure how based in objective musical assessment it, it could have been.
0: Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. It has continued to be an important piece in the repertoire. It seems to be catching on more and more today. Why do you think the piece resonates with us today?
1: Well, it goes back to, again, to the fundamental message um, of the piece, which is the message is about self-awareness and self-discovery and faith and humanity. I mean, it's very much like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that... We are united and through that unity, we have strength and we have compassion. And without that unity, we really have isolation and and loneliness. These are universal and fundamental and timeless uh, themes that Bernstein was grappling with and trying to answer. And for me, mass is one of the great 20th century pieces, I I think it's phenomenal, and uh, I've always thought so, and it's nice to see that many, many more people are having the opportunity to experience it.
0: I remember, Miriam, when you did Mass uh, with Baltimore Symphony five or six or seven years ago. Um, you used uh, Jubilant Sykes as your celebrant. Dear brothers, this is the gospel that I preach, and in its service I have suffered hardship like a criminal, yea, even unto imprisonment. But there is no imprisoning the word of God. I remember being so moved by the fact that Jubilant was singing and crying to a, a level that I had never heard before.
1: But you cannot abolish the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm.
0: No, you cannot abolish the word of the
1: Lord. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Jubilant did a wonderful job. That role, the role of the celebrant, is really embodies sort of each of our uh, individual journey to self-discovery, to questioning ourselves, to you know, to growing up and arriving at a place of reconciliation and understanding. And um, I think it's a great role, and a great piece can carry many, many interpretations, and, and I believe this is a great piece.
0: So we wait in silent reason Until reason is restored And
1: we wait for the season Of the word of the Lord We await the season Of the word of the Lord We wait We wait for the word
0: So think of all this music we've talked about so far and try to imagine what it was like for a young conductor named Marin Alsop to meet the person who made it happen. Not just the music he composed, but the decades he spent as America's most famous conductor and music educator. This is audio from three decades ago of Bernstein coaching a young Marin Alsop on her conducting skills. He interrupts her with some helpful advice on Beethoven's Second Symphony. Races before the piano, each time.
1: Each time, not this and time. This one, I think not. Well, yes. Why not?
0: Why not all the time?
1: Oh, this is such a um, surprise. A beautiful, warm. See, you on. cut
0: this off. Yes. Off. Uh, there's a hole.
1: Yes. So we and try this to speak? way. There's no. hole.
0: hmm See if we can do it. hmm Marin Lenny was a, a mentor for you, and I'd love to know what it was like coming to your first day working with Leonard Bernstein, your mentor what was that day like?
1: Well I had a couple of first days (laughs) (laughs) which is it's nice to get a a redo Um, the first first day was in Germany at the Schleswig-Holstein Festival in 1987 he was extremely warm and um, affectionate with me but it didn't go that well (laughs) for me And then I had my second first day at Tanglewood the following summer, and when he walked in the room, he said, oh, where's Marin? Because they've been telling him about me, and, you know, it was like clouds parted and God was talking to me and the sun was shining on me, and he looked at me and he said, don't I know you? And I didn't want to remind him of our (laughs) last encounter, so I just sort of shrugged my shoulders and we started from there, and he brought me up to the front of the room. And you know it was packed, of course, with TVs and people. And we worked on the Roy Harris Third Symphony, which is what I was going to conduct on a concert with him the following week. And he worked with me on it for about an hour and a half. And it was amazing. It was everybody. you know, For me, the room was empty, except for him and the musicians. At the end of that, he handed me his score to take home. And that was really the start of our deep connection.
0: Beyond Bernstein's music, which is, it seems to me played more and more today than it was in the 70s and 80s and 90s, what do you think is Bernstein's greatest legacy and will continue to be his greatest legacy?
1: Well, i that's hard to separate. I mean, I do think his, his compositions will be... And continue to be his greatest legacy, but I think his work as an educator was probably the next most important aspect for him. I think of Leonard Bernstein every single day in some way. I th- thank him. I I remember a moment, and that's what I think: admiring and loving someone brings, you know, I, I think of my parents often, too, who who've both passed away, that, you know, the people who are your idols, your mentors, your teachers, these people have such a huge impact. And it inspires me to try to challenge people to become mentors themselves. And each person listening to this has an enormous influence on all the people around them. And you know, try to be helpful. <laughs> that's that's the, only, the only goal, I hope, in life, is to try to be helpful.
0: Marin Alsop speaking about Leonard Bernstein. It really struck me that she framed his legacy as that of a helper. Think about a conductor on the podium, or a composer sitting in their studio with music paper everywhere, or a television personality bathed in bright lights. I bet the first word you'd use to describe such a person would be something other than helpful, right? Maybe confident or inspired or larger than life. But Marin said helpful. Bernstein the conductor helped musicians sound their best. Bernstein the TV star helped millions understand the music he loved, the music that we all love. And Bernstein the composer helped on an even deeper level. His music is about figuring it all out. Like this moment in mass, sing like you like to sing. God loves all simple
1: things, for God is the simplest.
0: This is music about the essence of humanity, loving one another and helping one another. It's a Leonard Bernstein moment through and through. It shows why his compositions still move us years after his death and why this celebration of his centenary this year is a chance to appreciate a great composer all over again. I will sing his praises while
1: I live. All of my
0: this episode on Leonard Bernstein for The Great Composers was produced by Colorado Public Radio. Our producer is Brad Turner. Audio editor is John Pino. Music advisor is Jeff Zumfeldy. Executive producer is Monica Vischer. The Great Composers will return soon with a new series on Sergei Rachmaninoff, We can't wait to share it with you, so please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. For The Great Composers, I'm David Ginder. Thanks again for listening to The Great Composers. Please support our work. You can do this two ways, by recommending this podcast to a friend or by becoming a member of Colorado Public Radio. Learn more at CPR.org.